Hey, I'm excited about this lesson. I hope you are too. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Colossians 2. We'll get there. We will get there today. Colossians 2. We're in this series, Killing Sin Before It Kills You. And we've been talking about the downward spiral of habitual sin. And uh, putting this up here, just remember, it goes through all of that. And the bottom line of the downward spiral is this. Sin will kill you if you don't kill it first. We need to be killing sin. And we do that through the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to talk about today is how looking back can cost you in the race of life. Looking back can cost you. I want to talk to you about August 7th, 1954. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, that was when two runners finished the mile in less than four minutes for the first time in history. And that may not seem like a big thing to us, but at the time it was a very big thing. Quite common, we know now. On May 6th, 1954... Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. It was just huge global news. And within two months, a man by the name of John Landy eclipsed the record by 1.4 seconds. That's how close. Then on August 7th, 1954, the two met together. So here you have the two first two men in history to run a mile under four minutes. They meet and they're competing against one another. And as they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead, the guy who was the second man to do this. It looked as if he would win, but as he neared the finish line, he was haunted by the question, where's Bannister? Where's Bannister? And so you see in that picture there, your notes, and right here, he looks to his left because he felt him on his left. And as he looked to his left, Bannister passes him on the right, right at the end and wins the race. Bannister, who wrote a book, uh, Autobiography, The First Four Minutes, I saw him glance inwards over his opposite shoulder. This tiny act of his held great significance and gave me confidence. Landy, for his part, uh, said this to Time magazine, If I hadn't looked back, I would have won. If I hadn't looked back, I would have won. That's my prayer. For this lesson and really for this whole series in a sense, I pray that you will not let your past sins cause you to wallow in despair. When you look at this downward downward spiral of habitual sin, what happens is we are looking back. We are looking back. We are looking back and we're constantly preoccupied with our past instead of moving forward and running the race towards the future. Listen, our past sins can paralyze us in the present and become excuses in the future. You must deal with your past. And I want to help you do that by God's grace and by God's word this morning. Now, why is this putting the past where it belongs important? I, I stop myself and I just ask myself this week, why is this so vital? I know it is. Why is it? Well, first of all, everyone has a past. 
Everyone here has a past. Don't let this lesson be, oh, this is for the, the, the man or the woman or the person that has this horrible past. This isn't for me. Listen, even you who were converted at a young age, you still have past sins in your life, okay? We all have a past. And no matter how sheltered or permissive your upbringing has been, all of us have regrets. I remember growing up at a time when fundamentalist preachers would brag publicly about having no regrets in life. And early on, I was naive enough to think, okay, I should do that. But it didn't take me long to realize, well, I do have regrets. And in fact, anybody who's honest about following Jesus is going to have regrets, okay? Regrets, if only I had never made that choice. If only I had chosen different friends. If only that I had that decision to do all over again. Listen, if only, if they are occupying and controlling your thoughts this morning, then you're in that downward spiral of despair, and God wants to set you free this morning. Secondly, some personalities are more prone to this than others. It doesn't take much for us to realize that if you're a perfectionist, then past sins may really paralyze you. But other personalities equally struggle with this in the sense that if you have a more forceful personality, then, then maybe you sin and you just press on and saying, well, uh, whatever, I'm just going to move on. And you don't deal with your sin in the past. And that leads me to the third reason this is important. Many, many, many Christians fail to practice daily confession and repentance. And listen, if you do not daily practice confessing your sins to God and repenting of sins on a daily basis, then you are here this morning with a backlog of undealt with past sin. And whether you realize it or not, Every sin creates a separation in fellowship, if you're a believer, and that that backlog creates a barrier, whether you realize it or not. And then finally, Satan uses your past to ruin your present and to increase sin in the future. It's a leverage for him. It's a bludgeon for him. And I love this quote, and I have it in your notes, I believe. The great tempter of men has two lies with which he plies us at two different stages. Before we've fallen, he tells us that one fall doesn't matter. It's a trifle. We can easily recover. No one will know. After we've fallen, immediately often, he tells us it's hopeless. We are given over to sin and need not attempt to rise. That's the basis, really, for the rest of this lesson. You must deal with your past before you can experience freedom in the future. And that's my hope. That's been my prayer. God, do it for us this morning. Let's begin by dealing with past sins, and then we'll talk about how to put the past where it belongs behind you. So let's talk about dealing with sins, past sins. First of all, one sin doesn't matter, so give in. Or does it? One sin doesn't matter, so give in. Or does it? Does the number of times we commit sin really matter? 
What if it's just one time? Well, listen, even one sin is deadly sin. Even one sin can condemn our lives to an eternity without Christ. You say, but I'm born again. Well, even one sin breaks fellowship with our Savior. Two things I want you to see. Even one sin can cause you to lose something that can never be recovered. Even one sin can cause you to lose something that can never be recovered. Let me use this illustration. This figurine, man, Gwen, I hope I don't break it. Here's this little figurine. It was on Gwen's grandmother's mantle when she was a little kid. And they were promised uh, certain, uh, they could pick from their grandmother's house whatever they wanted. This isn't the only thing she picked, but this was one thing. Am I right, Gwen? Gwen wanted to, <laughs> she wanted... Yeah, okay. If you want the, if you want the right story, if you want the whole story, please see Gwen afterwards. But anyway, she liked this thing. Well, they were playing one day and the grandkids, all the cousins, and they they broke it. And grandpa and grandma were sleeping. And so there was panic in the house. What shall we do? And one cousin said, "Where's the tape?" Where's the tape? So they're going to tape tape and she still here's her little hand. I don't know how how many pieces was she in? The other arm fell off. Okay. Well, it's an illustration, is it not? That some things, you know, they break. And they're, they're, in a sense, they can't be recovered. Okay? A sexual sin that can never be erased. A prison record that may never be pardoned. A testimony that took a lifetime to build, but is lost in a one second of a bad, sinful decision. If there is, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. If there is one darling sin that you would, that you would spare, Christ and your soul will never agree. In other words, what he's saying is, if there's one sin that you just love and treasure and you refuse to kill, Christ and your soul will never agree. There can be no peace between you and Christ while there is peace between you and sin. And we're talking about conscious sin that you know you committed, you don't deal with it, or you repeat and continue to repeat without repentance. One sin usually leads to more sin. So one sin can cost you something that can never be recovered, but also one sin leads to more sin. And the great example, whenever I think of this, I think of King David in 2 Samuel 11. Read the whole chapter. Many of you are familiar with the story, but because you think of adultery with Bathsheba, you think of immorality with her, you think of murder of her husband, but you miss the sin before the sins. And it happened in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring. At the time, then it happened. Just right there, you're like, whoa, uh oh. Then it happened. In the spring, when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And then it says, ominously, but David stayed in Jerusalem. I want you to see. That King David's downward spiral began with laziness. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. That always haunts me and convicts me and encourages me. Laziness led to boredom. 
And so he's roaming around on the, the top of the roof when he should have been out at war, but he's bored. And then boredom leads to lust because he sees the nakedness of Bathsheba. And then that led to adultery or immorality. And then that led to murder. But the one sin beneath all those sins is self-centered entitlement. And we miss that. Let me encourage you. You'll never kill sin until you all get in the habit of what is the sin beneath my sin. It was self-centered entitlement. I'm the king. I don't have to go to war. I send others to do that. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And yet I'm bored. Because here's the thing. When you live life your way, it's not full of, of satisfaction. It brings boredom. I'm the king and I see a woman who's not mine, but I still want her. I'm the king and I will sleep with whoever I want regardless of the consequences. I'm the king. I can make my consequences go away and cause someone else to pay for my sin. You see, the sin beneath the sin was self-entitlement. I can do it. And the irony of it is he was Yahweh's king. He was Yahweh's servant. And he forgot that. Maybe your past is not filled with many sins this morning that you regret. But there is that one sin that you wish you had a do-over on. And for some, that one sin this morning has led to many more sins. And your heart is filled with regret. And you're paralyzed by guilt. And if we would sit down and talk one-to-one as I have with many, many Men in discipleship, you would find that many, not just men, women too, are paralyzed by a truckload of guilt that they have not dealt with. And so you're enslaved to a habitual habit, if nothing else, a habit of guilt over your past. But here's the second thing to realize. When Satan comes and says many sins means it's time to give up, Does it? Does many sins mean it's time to give up? Just as one sin doesn't mean it's time to give in, many sins doesn't mean it's time to give up. Your past can be forgiven, but the consequences may remain. There's the tension. Your past can be forgiven. I want you to hear that and hear it clearly. Christ, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming... He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if Christ can take care of the sins of the world, I think he can take care of your sins and mine. We need to, remember, we need to connect what we believe to how we live. And that's good news. Christ has canceled your sin debt. Can I get an amen? You can talk back. Yeah, that he has canceled your sin debt. That's why we're in Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2, 13 through 15. On the cross, he paid your sin debt in full. That's why when he uttered his last words, next to the last words, he said, Tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. Paid in full. Colossians 2, 13 says, When you were dead... Hopeless, helpless in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The inner heart was sinful and enslaved. 
He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us, what? All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us. Every law you broke was nailed to the cross. Every curse, every sin debt was paid in full, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Whoa, triumphed over all the authorities? Boom, resurrection, but more, ascension. Christ is over all, and He is over your sins. He has conquered it all. The moment you trust Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. It blows, I, I can't even comprehend it. John 1.7, 1 John 1.7, If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is a washing of the blood of Christ. 1 John 2.12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been, have been, have been forgiven you for his namesake. Hebrews 10.10, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Aren't you glad that our triune God has dealt with our sin in three tenses? Past, present, and future. He has dealt with it. He has dealt with it. The Apostle Paul drives this truth home in the book of Romans. Look in your notes there. Therefore, I have been justif- Therefore having been justified by faith... By faith, we, man, I, I got saliva action today. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to have that by the Holy Spirit seared in your hearts this morning. But, number two, don't confuse no condemnation with no consequences. Don't confuse no condemnation. Forgiveness cancels our debt and removes condemnation, but often consequences remain. And that's just true. It doesn't cancel, forgiveness doesn't cancel our decision. And it doesn't always remove the consequences here in this life. Okay? In other words, when we sin, we can be forgiven, but we still need to make restitution if that's required. If we sin and lose our virginity, then it's lost. Okay? There is forgiveness, but there's no going back. Ruined health. Uh, If you ruin your, your liver and your health and your kidneys with sin... They're ruined. Taking a life, that person's still dead, though you can be forgiven. Unlawful divorce caused a separation. There's no going back. Burning a bridge with a careless word or a foolish act. Bridges get burnt, and you can be forgiven. You can even ask for forgiveness, and sometimes you won't get it from that person. God will give it to you, but that relationship is lost. 
in ministry, you will be no longer viewed as above reproach. And, and there's far too many ministers being put back in ministry way too quickly because there's consequences. Your past can be forgiven, but the choices were made and some consequences will never change. What's done has been done and you can't change that. And there may even be ongoing consequences, but they're still good news. That's reality. And let me say this. Not only does no condemnation not equal no consequences, but listen to this. Consequences do, do not equal condemnation. Do you see the tension between those two? So, oh, no condemnation in Christ. Oh, but there's consequences. Well, God forgive me, why can't you? Well, there's consequences. But just because there's consequences, that doesn't mean you're condemned by God or other Christians are condemning you. You've got to see that. You've got to understand this difference. But here's the good news. You personally can be changed in spite of consequences. Yes, there's consequences, often unchangeable, but you can always be changed. Amen? You, in fact, God allows, graciously allows consequences to help with that change. To remind you, and we're going to see that in this lesson. And so, uh, God's grace, if you are a Christian this morning, if you've crossed from unbelief to belief, if you've crossed... From darkness to light, by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God's grace has changed you on the inside and is continuing to change you. Look at a couple passages. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at, we, we could read the whole chapter, but verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 4 through 6. After having talked about our utter, total, pervasive depravity and sin nature, he says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we could not, we are totally separated from God. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are seated in the ascension. You have been so transformed, so changed, that you can now sit with Christ at the right hand of the Father and be accepted and enjoy the fellowship of God. Turn to Titus 3. Titus 3, 5 through 7. No matter the consequences of your sin, you can be changed as a Christian from the inside out. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us, and I love this, He saved us, not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, nor on the basis of the deeds we will do in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is you have been born again. The Spirit has given you a new nature, a new heart, and the renewing by the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you. 
whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. And you know from that verse, that's ascension. He went up and the Spirit came down. He gave you the authority of the Spirit. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made or we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He made you new. And so no matter what your consequences that remain, you personally have been changed in Christ, are being changed in Christ, and will yet be perfectly transformed into the glory of Christ in the future. Woo, that's exciting. And God continues that cleansing process as you confess sins, the past sins, Whatever happens today, as you confess that, 1 John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 ends with having confessed our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us. We, we focus so much on the forgiveness, we forget there's a cleansing process. Isn't that good news? So he doesn't just look at you and, okay, you sinned. Let's move on. No, you sinned. Let me wash you up. Let me cleanse you. You got some dirt on your soul. Let me, let me wipe that off. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Listen to the London Baptist Confession. It says this, Although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that shall bring damnation to them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. That's why this lesson. It's necessary. It's necessary. And so here you have a broken that continues to break <laughs> figurine that was still chosen, though it was broken, and still treasured, though it was broken, and continues to break. It's still treasured. Here it is. And that's how Christ is with us. The triune God doesn't toss us to the side when we sin. He's changing us. And unlike that figurine, we can be totally made whole again. And we will in the resurrection to come. Amen? So, how can I put the past behind me where it belongs? Let me give you three steps. There's spiritual warfare. These are not easy. They can only be done by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they can be done. Number one, identify the cause of your present guilt identify the cause of your present guilt. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't simply mean figure out what sin you did, because most of us know that. I mean, what's the source of your guilt? There's two kinds of guilt, true guilt and there's false guilt. Many here are enslaved by a sense of, and I shouldn't say many because I don't know that, but I know, I know there are some. Because that, that's just human, the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, enslaved by false guilt. So let's talk about both of these. First of all, true guilt is conviction, conviction from God to draw near for his cleansing. True guilt is where God puts his finger on your conscience and says, Chris, you sinned here, but I'm pointing it out, 
not to condemn you, but to draw you to myself through confession so that I can cleanse you and help you not to do it again. You see, God uses his word, his spirit, his people, and our own conscience to point out what is wrong so that we come to him. He welcomes, our, we, he welcomes us to come with our sin and guilt. Isn't that beautiful? Listen to Isaiah 1, 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, the I am God. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying, hey, you got sin. Come to me. I can, I can cleanse it. I can forgive it. I can restore you to a right relationship with me. If you consent, but we forget the rest. If you consent, consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Come. If you don't, there are consequences. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, the Lord convicts to cleanse us. Remember the Lord came? Adam, Adam, where are you? He didn't say, come here so I can condemn you. Now there were consequences. And there was cursing. And it was severe. And the whole world was cast into a curse because of it. But he drew them in so that he could provide the, the covering, the blood shed a covering, the promise of the sin killer. He called them not to condemn them. He called them out of shame. He called them out of hiding. It's amazing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But... If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So that's true guilt. Leads to conviction. False guilt is condemnation. False guilt is condemnation from the devil, and he uses the world, and he uses our flesh, and he does it to drive us away as unworthy. So false guilt says... You sinned, give up. You sinned, so why try? You sinned, don't go to God. He doesn't want you. Remember Revelation 12? One One of Satan's names is Diabolos, slanderer, accuser of the brethren, day and night, accusing us before God. See her, see him. They're not worthy. They're not worthy. And you are a worthless God. That's what the devil is saying. And our guilt says to us, I'm not worthy. And then we begin to think God's not worthy. And all of a sudden, we're in habitual sin. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Guilt is real. And guilt is good. Guilt is a gift from God. To say, you're headed down a path of destruction. So don't, don't embrace the guilt, but deal with it as God wants you to deal with it. Are you with me? 
Guilt is good. I mean, there, there are Christians today who will teach you that there, there, there's no guilt as if there's no, no, we're not condemned. But guilt, there is guilt when we sin. The devil misuses and abuses real guilt to condemn us and drive us further from God. Remember what James Stalker said in that quote I read earlier. After we have fallen, he tells us that it's hopeless. We are given over to sin and need not attempt to rise. False guilt. False guilt. False guilt is the guilt that remains even after I've come to God to be forgiven. That's what I... Are you with me? So he whispers to you, the, the tempter, deceiver. Soon as you sin, first he whispers, do it, do it, it's okay. And then as soon as we do it, he whispers, you're hopeless and worthless, give up. Then the spirit, greater is he that is in you that's in the world, convicts us to come to God. And so we put 1 John 1, 9 into practice. We confess that sin. We repent of that sin. We thank God for his cleansing. And then the devil whispers, it didn't work. It didn't work. You're still unworthy. That's false guilt. And your adversary, the devil, does it. Now, here's what I want you to see. True or false, living with guilt is deadly. True or false, living with guilt is deadly. We need to deal with it. Allow the Lord's conviction. To deal with you. Listen, Psalm 32. This, if you want one passage that kind of sums up this message today, it's Psalm 32, where David, after all those sins we talked about earlier, comes to God and confesses and talks about the grace of confession. But in Psalm 32, he says this When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And then he says, Selah, pause and reflect on the weight of unconfessed sin. Are you with me? The guilt. Physical illness can be result. Depression, it's said that half of mental patients could be cured if they could hear from one in authority, you are forgiven. Insecurity, self-fulfilling prophecy, I'll always be this way. I'll never be free of this. Separation from God, a works mentality. I've told you often of a lady in our church many, many, many years ago, decades ago, who out of guilt of sin came to Pastor Adrian and myself, and and that's Pastor Tyrone, and said, I want to clean clean the church. And it was like she she thought she was a Roman Catholic doing penance to clean the church. Of course, it didn't last long. It never does, because you can't clean enough. But it broke my heart for her. Put your past where it belongs. Identify the cause of your guilt. And then, number two, deal with your past once and for all. Deal with your past once and for all. The Lord has dealt with your sins, past, present, and future. Don't fail to deal with your sins in the past as well as the present as well. So how do you do it? 
True guilt calls for confession and repentance. How do I put the past behind me? Too often, we just move on and we don't do what's biblically right with our sin. Confess it and repent of it. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 32, again, Psalm 32, David speaking. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then he says, Selah again. So first he says, pause and think about the weight of your guilt. Selah. Then confess and forsake it and receive the Lord's forgiveness. Pause and think on that. Have you done both of those? Have you done both of those with your past? How do I confess my sins? I gave you four A's. Last week I had a handout. I think it's still floating around here. Eight A's of confession. You ought to work through those. Because we we think we know how to confess. And I don't think we do. Because first of all, we don't do it. And I think then when we think we've done it, we haven't done it biblically. So we don't have time to go through all eight of the A's. You have that handout from last week. Ask, you can get it here again today. Here's four A's. Number one, agree with God that the choice you made is sin. You can't confess a mistake. You don't confess if I did anything. Don't confess like a politician. That's the principle. If I have wronged you, O God, if you are offended, O God. No, agree with God. Either it's sin and it needs to be confessed, or if it's not sin, move on, right? So agree with God. Confession is agreeing with God. Whether it's an attitude or an action, little sin, big sin. Whether it's a sin of commission where we do what we shouldn't do, or the sin of omission where we don't do what we ought to do. I think that covers everybody here. Every single day. That's why we need daily confession. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts just as we forgive one another. And it says, give us our daily bread. We should be praying daily confession. Number two, having agreed with God, acknowledge your responsibility to repent and make restitution. So remember last week's? Take responsibility. Trust in God's goodness. Take responsibility. Turn to Christ from your sin. Here it is. Acknowledge, I need to repent and make restitution if I need to. So repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. So I did this. I thought it was okay. I... Knew it was not okay, but I did it anyway. I don't want to do that anymore. I have a change of mind about that. I agree with you about it now, and I acknowledge my responsibility to turn from it, to forsake it. And then number three, ask God and others to forgive you and begin the cleansing process. 
not because of the work of forgiveness and confession, but because you humbly come to God and say, I can't cleanse myself. You've got to do it. And you come to those you offended and said, I was wrong, Denise. I was wrong to talk about you behind my back. Will you forgive me? And then you wait because you can't make her. And sometimes people don't, but God always will. And so we come to him, but we also go to others. And then finally, having asked when it comes to God, accept God's forgiveness in Christ and choose to sin no more. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Jay Adams, Christian counselor, calls confession the gateway into repentance. Confession is the beginning of repentance. A true confession must involve seeing sin as an offense against a holy God and a grief to the Savior and a quenching of the Spirit. It must also involve a desire and intent to change. Then, if confession is accompanied by faith, it's not a negative thing but a glorious one, much-needed thing. Confession should not be disdained, avoided, or lead to discouragement with the thought, but here I am again. While it's definitely not good that you are where you are when confession is needed, the faith involved in a Christ-focused confession is both honoring to God and restoring and life-changing to you. Isn't that good? Man, that's just good. He's not saying, oh, here you are again. He's saying, oh, I'm glad you keep coming back because I'm not done with you. And your sins are covered. But when you confess them, I deal with you. I cleanse you. And I remind you, stop that. I can enable you to have victory here. But false guilt, false guilt leads to condemnation and regret. False guilt leads to condemnation and regret. So, true guilt leads to confession and repentance. False guilt leads to condemnation and regret. So, here's four things to get out. So, once you've done confession and repentance and received forgiveness, any guilt that comes after that is false guilt. And it comes from the devil to condemn us. Okay, here's how you deal with it. I mean, there's many ways, but here's here's for those of you that are in this cycle and today you want to throw off the baggage of your past. You want to put it where it belongs. Four things. Refuse to confess the same sin twice. Unless you commit it twice. Which likely you may do. Okay, we know that. But my point is, I did it. I confessed it. I don't have, we're not, it's not a continual life of confession of same sins. Number two, refuse to question God's sincerity and freely giving it to you. See, every, when you doubt, when you entertain false guilt, you're questioning God's sincerity and forgiving you. Make sense? So you go back to the goodness of God. Last week, trust it. 
Trust the goodness of God. You go back to the promises of the ascended Christ, who's victorious over all. You go back to 1 John 1, 9. You claim the promise. He has freely forgiven us. Number three, refuse to be overly introspective about confessing, repenting, and whether God has forgiven you. So, number one, refuse to confess the same sin twice. Why? Because the past is behind you. Number two, refuse to question God's sincerity. Christ is above, within, and before you. Three, refuse to be overly introspective. Look up to live out. We talked about the ascension. So, in other words, instead of looking within, did I really? And some, some people are prone this way. Did I really ask it? Did I do the four A's? But there's eight A's. Did I do them all right? And, and, and have I really repented? Because I kind of think I might do it again. Was I sincere? And his forgiveness, did I? Did I, I I'm just not. And, and it's horrible. You're paralyzed. Look, instead of looking within at that point, you need to look up and begin to live out the forgiveness you've received. And then number four, refuse to bring it up again to God. In a negative way. Refuse to bring it up against. For some of you, you live in the past because you rehearse the past over and over. And I'm just as prone to that temptation as anyone here. Some Christians seem like they enjoy reliving their sin more than reveling in God's grace. Listen, when your testimony about your sin in the past is more about your sin than about your Savior, there's something wrong there. There's something wrong. And you can be free of that this morning. You can be free of that. Listen to this poem. As a children, as children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last I snatched them back and cried, How could you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. Listen, release your past, place it under the blood of Jesus. You don't even have to place it there. It already is. Acknowledge that it's under the blood and let go of it. Let go of it. And I gave you a chart here. We don't have time to go through it, but I looked up all those verses again this week. Which side of that column are you living? I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you've got to deal with it. And Christ our God will enable you to live on the left hand and not the right hand of that chart. Well, let's talk about the final aspect. Number three, allow your past to bring glory to God in the present. Allow your past. I said, don't bring up your past in a negative way, but it's sometimes good to think about your past in a positive way. And here's the truth. The truth is this. Your past can become a reminder to yourself to praise God in the present and a warning to live for God in their present as well. Isn't that beautiful? 
And this is how Psalm 32 ends. So Psalm 32, he talks about when he didn't deal with his past. Then he confesses and repents. And he talks about the blessedness of the man or woman whose sins are confessed and covered. And then he ends Psalm 32 with saying these words. He talks about how he will instruct others to not sin as he has sinned. Listen, when you remember your past and you have dealt with it, as I've taught this morning, then when it comes up, you just turn it to praise. Psalm 103, my favorite psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never forget all that he has done for me. And he goes on in that psalm. As far as the east is from the west, my sins have been dealt with. They've been cast into an ocean of forgetfulness. As Corey Timboon said, and there's been a sign placed there, no fishing. It's a glorious thing. I have a past. Praise God, it's under the blood. Amen? But then turn it. And use it as a warning. Oh, my brother, oh, my sister, don't go down that path. I went down it. And it was not good. But God can help you right now to turn and repent. He helped me. I wish I had done it sooner, but I didn't. But I'm warning you now, before it's too late, don't go down that path. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let me end with Landy and the rest of his life. Landy, guy who looked back, lost the race. One of the fastest men, living men in his day, the, basically the second fastest man alive. And he went on racing. And you know what? The two biggest races of his life, the one I told you about at the beginning of this lesson, and then another Olympic race, he lost them both. He lost the two biggest races of his life. And despite that, he expressed no regrets. Here's what he said. I may have lost the two biggest races of my running career, he told Sports Illustrated in 1999, but the sport has been a big part of a very rich life. How much more with Christ Jesus? Yes, we have blown it. Yes, we have lost races that we should have won in Christ Jesus. But it's a marathon, folks. And the riches of his grace far outweigh our past and gives us hope for the present and a promise of a future. I just think it's amazing. And I want you to have what David says. So here's what David says at the end of Psalm 32. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, heavy stuff because sin is a heavy weight upon our souls. If there's any here who need the application, and really it's all of us, may we daily confess this week, begin a new spiritual habit, 
And may those who are weighted cast aside through confession and repentance. Lord, may your grace wash, cleanse, renew, and regenerate us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.